You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. My guest today on The Luxury Item podcast is Anna Angelic. Anna is a strategy executive who focuses on management and growth of modern brands. She was named Forbes CMO Next, and she is coming out with her first book. It's called The Business of Aspiration, a global journey on what consumers value today and what they want to pay for and how this transforms business and brand growth. Anna earned her doctorate in sociology and worked at the world's top brands and advertising agencies, including Rebecca Minkoff, David Yerman, and Havas Worldwide. She was selected by Forbes as one of the top 50 CMOs in 2018. Anna was also recognized as one of the luxury women to watch by Luxury Daily and one of the top 10 digital strategists by The Guardian. She is frequently quoted in British Vogue, Financial Times, FT's How to Spend It, Wired, and Frame magazine, and is an expert source for trend companies like The Future Laboratory, Red Scout, and WGSN. Anna is also a widely read columnist, public speaker, and advisor. Here's an excerpt from The Business of Aspiration. Modern aspiration economy splits the traditional territory of aspiration in two. Perhaps the most astute way of capturing the past decade's bifurcation of aspiration is a neon sign saying, you are obviously in the wrong place, featured at Off-White's 2016 fall-winter runway show. Referencing the line from the movie Pretty Woman, the sign captures the fact that there was hardly a period where aspiration meant more and less. The use of the term expanded to include brands from Rolex to Louis Vuitton to Cartier to Nike to Sonos to Shinola to Supreme to Kim Jones's Dior collaborations. It is also constricted to ephemerals like time, space, privacy, self-actualization, belonging, human originality, and artisanship. Anna, welcome to The Luxury Item. Thanks. Thank you for having me, Scott. I'm so excited to have you on. I've uh, subscribed to your newsletter for reading it for the last few months, and it really hooked me. And uh, so I said, I have to have Anna on the show, and I'm, I'm glad you're able to make it. Your perspectives on branding and strategy and luxury um, are right in my wheelhouse. So uh, I'm very excited to have you on. And congratulations on your first book. Thank you. I mean, thank yeah. you for all of this. Like hearing all of this from the industry veteran is like, you know, it's great to hear. So what was it like to write your first book? Well, I already wrote my uh, PhD dissertation 10 years ago when I was getting my PhD. And that was that was like the first book, basically, because that was the, the, the even more rigorous process than, right. than this one. So, I, I mean, I, I just remember it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And then mm-hmm. with this one, I did it in two months. I mean, that's why I started the newsletter in February, because I'm like, okay, this is a weekly newsletter that's going to force me to write every week. And I literally finished the book in two months, and it was quick and easy. And uh, I mean, I'm sure it was not as academically rigorous as I would not get the pass on this one but it's not meant to be it's meant to be for professionals it's a practical book on luxury brand strategy the position that you're taking in your book if if correct me if i'm wrong uh the business of aspiration is that today's consumer has an evolving set of status symbols it's no longer strictly about aspiring to own those lavish brands and chasing logos and the goods that wealthy you know that the wealthy value or even gathering 
experiences. So could you talk a little bit about where we've been and where we're going in terms of status symbols? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for me, the first step in sort of thinking about all of that was the macro level about how uh, aspirational economy transformed and what does modern aspirational economy mean? So we all know, everyone who works in luxury knows about Thorsten Veblen, who was 100 years, who is a sociologist and economist, who put forward a theory of leisure class. And without like going back too much in time, it is it was a system that sort of trickled aspiration from the top. If you imagine that the top of the pyramid are people who are rich or who are born um, into into certain social class, their behaviors, the way they spend money inspired or all other groups aspired to, to have that sort of a lifestyle. So the role of brands in that system was to put forward the narrative and the brands are really good at that because brands innately create status symbols. They tell us if you buy this, you're going to be smarter or you're going to look more accomplished or you're going to look younger, prettier, you're going to get a, a better girl, you're going to find a pot of gold, you know, like brands right. are always promising us if if we buy their product. So that is the core of accumulation of material things that was that aspiration economy, but also leisure and experiences in a way where, where sort of lower and middle classes emulate higher classes. And that was a very simple and straightforward way of doing things for the longest time. So what I am addressing now is not just a shift from tangibles to intangibles, which has been already covered a lot in terms of experience economy, transformation economy, where self-actualization is, you know, the, the ultimate aspiration, whereas I'm more looking and what sort of landscape the modern aspiration economy operates according. What is the dynamic there? Because we don't have hierarchies anymore. There is no more the pyramid. Now it's more of a network and how taste is created, how we organize ourselves in communities and how the social influence is conducted. So in that sense, aspirational can be someone who curates very successfully their Instagram account or your fantastic Twitter account, for example. You have a lot of cultural and social capital on that Twitter account because people come for product, not product, for images and point of view and your discoveries that you are putting in your feed. That's your chest of curiosities. So now that status is not, that social distancing, it's not anymore straightforward. Do the brands get it? What brands get the idea of, you know, modern, the modern aspiration economy um, and that, that values are shifting? Have you seen any brands that have latched onto that idea? Yes, and uh, I think that Telfer Clemens recently has been getting a lot of press and he has been around since 2004, which people forget. In 2017, he got CFDA, but what he managed to create, he created social, he turned social and cultural accessibility into a growth strategy. And I will explain. So when you look at his show, the latest show in 2019 was about American dream by those who were marginalized and excluded from it. So he very successfully latched onto a specific culture 
And in this sense, that's black and brown, queer, downtown scene culture. And managed to use those values of accessibility to create unseen scale, like Bushwick Birkin, his bag is not the most interesting thing about his brand at all. That's right now the engine for what he calls Telfar industry. Oh, with right. The music, the multimedia shows, the art project. The whole idea was to create something that is so accessible, that is unbelievably desirable, and that truly blows the aspirational economy away. So do you think any of the traditional luxury brands, the Louis Vuittons, Tiffany, is this something that they can be a part of? Hermes, yes. Mm-hmm. LVMH, I, my take is a no, and I'll tell you why. Because what I've seen in past maybe decade is that we have a great divide or they a great bifurcation of the luxury industry on one end there is big luxury like big pharma big media very commercial so they those are the ones who are looking at these old school aspirational symbols the logo the experience the artification of things opening new stores but when you think about it That's something that's everywhere. That's not anymore a distinction in any sense. On the other hand, are places like Hermes and like a lot of modern luxury brands, Hermes themselves, they say, we're not a luxury brand. We are handcrafted human creativity. We are in the business of human creativity. We are the craftsmanship brand. So they don't even want to identify themselves with, with luxury that has become an industry. So I think Hermes for sure, because what they are creating, and that is very important because it's, it applies to their entire value chain, not just their marketing, is that they, have, they, they move away from that transactional nature that has become so common in luxury now. And they really have the communities, the work of human hands and the creativity. And when you look at the people, they work their, their entire lives. And Hermes even started craftsmanship schools because they, the, the, the old craftsmen they worked with are dying off and their kids go and do other things. Right. It's not anymore a generational thing like from father to son, mother to daughter. So they had a hard time finding those very well-versed and knowledgeable artisans. So they are creating schools for those. And also they don't play for scale. Right. So do you think modern aspiration economy is for more the millennials and Gen Z or it's for everybody? It is for everybody. It's a values thing. And the values are what kind of social, environmental and cultural capital are you buying as a consumer? What do you value? And then second is what kind of capital are you creating as a brand? So you see we're living in an economy that revolves around taste and aesthetic and innovation, communities, design, environmentalism, and social influence. What were some of the drivers of those change that shifted our idea of these new status symbols? But because changes like this, something has to have happened in the culture to, to drive that. So what was that? There are a number of things. And that's sort of what brought me to write this book is what I was seeing in my own work as the chief marketing officer and before that on agency side, it was not anymore the consumers are just like 
doing spending them their time differently or or spending them time on consuming media differently or who influenced them or how they're shopping differently like online it was the deep it was a deeper change in their values what do they pay attention to what do they find valuable what do they find worth paying for in terms of their money and all of a sudden it became less about consume, consume more, more, more. And it became more about micro. It became more about how do you have a discerning taste? How do you evolve that taste? Do you become a coffee connoisseur? Do you become an antique bourbon collector? Do you become like the ways that that sort of passions and interests and taste was formed? Yeah. started to be very different and started to be a very active behavior. So that was one change. And then the second one is the social influence in the communities we form. Because social networks are mass now and we assume that what we see that it's not real. I mean, you can rent a, a grounded a private jet outside of Moscow for 200 bucks, you know? Mm-hmm. And take a photo there and like be an influencer, <laughs> uh, right? And so when we see things like that, when we see those uh, Airbnb aesthetics, so-called, and we see the coffee shops that look the same, and we see the influencers that look the same, that is not aspirational to us anymore. What is more aspirational to us, it's something that is more real. That means our immediate group of like-minded others and curators that actually put some sort of knowledge forward, not just take a photo on a cobblestone street. So do you think any of it has to do with the shift where consumers trust, have less trust in corporations and big business than ever before? And they're sort of, sort of retreating into these smaller worlds and smaller communities with, they're, they're more relatable to people that are like-minded? I think that is definitely part of it. That is definitely part of it because when you see like, how easily people get canceled, when you see that any sort of critique uh, in music or in film and in culture gets the fans go rapidly after journalists. You're right. like, why do I need this in my life? You know, that, right. and you don't, you never know, like with all those people recently being um, canceled and called out left, right and center. And most of them with a very, very good reason, even you think about it, people don't want to take risks. So internet and I think social media, they're not a nuanced debate space. It's not the public sphere. We all retreat in our own little comfortable bubbles. Yeah. So do you think the pandemic has crippled the modern aspiration economy or, you know, perhaps recalibrate it to accelerate it faster? It destroyed it. And I will tell you why, because modern aspiration economy is economy that exists and is nurtured and managed in the industrialized societies. So that is Europe, that is United States to the great extent. And then you see how manufacturing is moved to China. So all those countries, actually what they do, they they brand their provinces, their towns, the food. They rely on tourism. They rely on art, on art galleries, on fashion. And coronavirus closed all of that down. So how do you make money as a country 
when people can't come and visit and eat the food and they don't go to Arl to see that, that unique uh, vineyard that, that's there. And uh, in that sense, what we are buying in aspiration economy are not everyday necessities. They're so, add-ons, so absolutely. So what are the implications for marketers then? How should they be thinking about their brand narratives and strategies? There are multiple implications, and I think that on on, on on a several level, on a three levels, when you look at what a modern brand strategy is, first and foremost is about an approach. It's about improving quality of life for a privileged group of people, because we are still talking here about aspiration. And I want to be very mindful of this, that this aspirational economy is not unfortunately available. To, to everyone. It's available to a lot more people than traditional one, but not for everyone. It, it's, it's not available to people who don't have time to invest in it. It's not about the money, but it's about investment of time. So, so on that level, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, so brands, so what should brands start thinking about now if, if, you know, in the modern aspiration economy, what should they be doing with their current narratives in order to, you know, appeal to this audience? Or do you think is this going to be something that's more post-pandemic or can they do something now? They can absolutely do things now because for one is, for me, the most important thing is to have a very clear set of values, very clear purpose and mission and reason to exist in this world, no matter in what industry or premium mass aspiration luxury level they're, pray, uh, they're playing in, they need to put forward that they're very clear DNA, they're very clear set of values. And there was never a better time for brands to reassess their values and really ask themselves, why do we exist here beyond making money? Yeah. What do we want to put forward? What is our story? And then once you have that brand identity, very clear and very relevant brand identity, then you don't need to look what your competitors are doing and you don't need to copy their marketing strategies. Or It's not about the positioning. It's about your identity. So yeah. that is the first time. Mm -hmm. Second, the brands should start thinking of themselves as creative and not just commercial operations. So they are connecting their products with the other realm, with spirituality, with culture, with art, with design, with architecture, with community, with some inclusivity, with something else that's not economic. So they play this role of connecting the functional and the cultural and symbolic. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a shift in how consumers think about luxury. You know, there's been this democratization of luxury where it's no longer, you know, exclusive to people of a certain socioeconomic class or group. And due to increasing accessibility and knowledge, primarily through digital channels, of course, like e-commerce and resale and social media, more and more consumers are able to shop luxury products to varying degrees. So what does the term luxury mean these days? Is it about price? Is it about exclusivity? Or do you think it's something else? I don't, I, I like, again, I would say, first of all, luxury is an approach. And as an approach, that is something that you need time and taste and human touch needs to be part of it. So that is any sort of human touch needs to be on any level of the value chain. So that is an approach. How do you improve someone's life in those small moments of joy, small luxurious moments? And then luxury is a sector. It's an industry. 
So that is a big industry of LVMH. There is also modern luxury industry when you have up and coming jewelry stores or up and coming uh, uh, luxury fashion apparel brands like Kate, for example. Their prices are definitely luxury and their designs and materials are luxury. And then you have luxury as a business model. So luxury as a business model is one that uses what you just described, that sort of scarcity, non-accessibility, constant increasing in prices, having fans before having customers and advertising in a way that you don't sell products but you will actually let people know what having that product means right you know it seems that achieving cultural credibility is key for today's young luxury consumers you know recently you know boston consulting group and high snobiety revealed how culture is at the center of how young luxury consumers shop and the authors of this study this is a quote from the study it said brands that are successful in this new environment do not simply respond to trends or outside narratives, but instead become true drivers of culture. So how does cultural credibility fit into the modern aspiration economy? And what are the roles of these cultural pioneers, the ones who influence the influencers? Who are they now in the, in the uh, modern aspiration economy? I think that is, uh, I, I would love to hear what you think as well. I think that's a very blanket statement. And that is one of those straw man arguments that no one is actually going to disagree with. Because I don't know when culture was not relevant. Even when you have the most mass brand, the culture of consumer, the, the organizational culture, the corporate culture, the wider culture where, where a company and a brand operates was relevant. I understand why they're saying that. I'm more interested in the mechanism. Oh, you're saying the mechanism. What do you mean? What is the strategy? What is the mechanism of a brand becoming a cultural player? You, you see like how Taufer Clemens became a cultural player is by designing for himself, for him, fr his friends who are like him and for those customers who are excluded for, for the mainstream fashion narrative, right? Right. So is he the one who influences the influencers? He will be now, but he was around for 15 years. And he had a very hardcore, rabid group of fans that didn't go beyond Queens and downtown New York and maybe some, some specific music scene. Once you start talking specifically, you have a lot of examples that those blanket statements sort of obscure. And I, I, like, I don't think anyone would argue that there was ever a difference. Even social studies were always saying, when you look at the trends, don't look at the influencers, look at the fast followers, those who are easily influenced by everything that's going on around. Where do social media influencers fit into this whole equation? So, you know, if the modern aspiration economy revolves around community, generosity and social improvement, where do they fit in? Right. So I think that their role was very precarious during the pandemic, especially because uh, those influencers that sort of did not, that ignored the situation, they didn't read the mood that went on and travel, they were called out with a good reason. But those influencers who stayed at home and did the same things that we were doing, we were like, well, why are you, why am I following you? Why, why are you an influencer? You, you're the same as I am, you know? Right. I'm not aspiring to anything. So that was sort of, I think it exposed that influencers actually are here for the reach. They are, they belong to traditional aspirational economy. They're a business tool and commercial mechanism, a commercial distribution point. And, media with wide reach. 
And then that also exposed the micro-influencers, those who have communities around them. And that is what the modern aspiration economy is. The same staying on the example of um, Telfar brand, that is a very strong community. But you have Marine Serre, for example, she's doing upcycled products. But there is a community around that. There is a community around people who love plants. So those influencers who are part of the community are the modern aspiration influencers, but they're also curators. So, so do you think, I was saying, do you think it's sort of, you know, we've heard about this term mastige thrown about for the last couple of decades. And I'm thinking, you know, thinking about social media influencers and you have social media influencers pushing products that aren't that expensive, um, but the aura that they're building around it, it comes across as some sort of mass luxury brand. Um, so I'm wondering if there's an element of mastige in these, uh, in the whole idea of the you know, modern aspiration economy. Modern aspiration economy is the exact opposite. Okay. <laughs> it's the exact opposite of premiumization. And that is because when you use strategy of premiumization or mastige, you're basically using a mediocre product, the basic product, and you're using status codes. And that was used when started 20 years ago with alcohol brands when they're like, oh, you know, this wine has this label that looks more, you know, fancy and more luxury and there is more gold involved and so on. So that expanded in all areas. So you go and you fly on Delta Economy Comfort and you get a free banana, you know. Right. But you feel that is the fake sense. It's still the traditional status symbol but you, because you're still working towards first class, right? Right. And that means this first class is an aspiration, traditional one. And when you buy mastige stuff that have like, that you pay, that you, you get a deal, basically you paid more for something basic. So the joke's on you. And in modern aspirational economy is you pay with your time. You accumulate knowledge. You refine your taste. That's how you move higher up. Because you become slowly a curator, a connoisseur, you become more knowledgeable about 35 different coffee beans. Isn't that what influence, that's, isn't that what social media influencers do? They become curators of whatever their brand is and whatever brand that they're talking about or wearing that perhaps is not expensive brand, but it just seems that they're wrapping their, their own brand around it it comes across to them as something exclusive and um, created, you know, curated by the social media influencer, yet the brand is just some, you know, plain brand, but they're adding their stamp of prestige to it, even though it might not be. No, that's still uh, mastige. I mean, how it is not mastige because you're buying... No, yeah, it is. I agree with you. It is mastige. Right. right. So, but that's not like, you know, those influencers are paid to do that. And you don't they don't endorse brands just for their good health you know that is the difference between a curator that, for example your example of your twitter and i suggest everyone follow scott care on twitter it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a chest of curiosity <laughs> you don't put, put stuff there because 
like anyone is paying you to do that. You put right. stuff there because you're excited and inspired and you want to share. Sharing excites you and you like to dig deep in culture. And the more you dig, the, the, the deeper you dig, you know, the better taste you have, the more advanced you are in terms of your cultural savvy. Right. You know, you, you recently wrote a really fascinating piece in your newsletter on the DJ model of growth. You said, uh, quote, the DJ model of growth is when a company uses collaborations to increase its relevancy and revenue. And this model addresses the challenge of growth in mature markets. The strategy behind the DJ model of growth is a remix. The DJ model keeps reframing a brand for customers in a new context. And you mentioned you know, luxury giant retailers like Louis Vuitton and Montclair as examples of companies that use collaborations to increase its relevancy and revenue. So, what, you know, if you could talk a little bit about what the DJ model is and um, you could drop some names of brands that are, that are doing that and why is, that, why is it important? It's important on several levels, and the way I addressed the the DJ model, which I sort of came up with, is to go beyond thinking fashion collaborations, and because those for me are mostly for PR and and marketing, especially between luxury and streetwear these days. That's why the example I used was from a completely different industry and not from luxury. So on a case study of Ikea, I showed how the DJ model operates in putting the brands in different lifestyle, cultural uh, zeitgeist, and then also social contexts. So on the first level, there are collaborations that are for say collectors, and design connoisseurs and furniture hype beasts. So for those, they would, IKEA would bring furniture from the 1950s, the modernist furniture that they were, that Scandinavian design is known for, but they would also create collaborations with say fashion designers for a limited edition or lighting designers or architects or interior designers. And those would be those, um, special edition, limited edition. They even went into apparel in Japan where they created t-shirts for uh, Harajuku crowd. So they, they wanted to be they captured the zeitgeist of Harajuku, which is a lot of very high, very high beasts in Japan, are, and they addressed how those people live. So it was all about bring us to our living spaces. So there is always more depth than just slapping uh, Jeff Koons or Murakami logo on Louis Vuitton bag. Can traditional luxury brands live in that space? Can they get involved in the DJ model? Absolutely, absolutely. The point of the DJ model is to find aligned values, to find what the sort of why it works for IKEA is because IKEA knows who, who it is. They have unbelievably strong brand identity, which is rooted in the Swedish character. Egalitarianism, humility, quirkiness, hum, humility. That's their identity. Mm -hmm. And then they have a personality that expresses that consistently. So that's why they can simultaneously mean like, oh, uh, Sweden, Scandinavian modernist furniture and something cheap. 
they can absorb those different perceptions. Their identity is so strong and their personality is consistently delivered through those quirky ads. I see. So, you know, so, but they're also very open. That's one of their, their features of their values and their character is they're very open and they want to flex their zeitgeist muscles. So they, they use those values. So whoever they collaborate with reflects those values. When you just have any fashion collaboration and two brands come together, they're doing this, it for hype. That's very different. All right. Okay, that makes sense. And I think you, you were, I'm sorry, I interrupted you before you said something about a second level. Right. And the second level is uh, the level of how IKEA is a furniture company, but they redefine themselves, which is unbelievably smart because it allows them to grow into different categories. And the fastest way to get into different categories is through collaborations. They redefine themselves as a place for well-designed everything, which means they can go and partner with Sonos, for example. Right, right or Adidas for exercising in small spaces. So what they routinely do, they, that level of how do we live today, the modern life collaborations are all about improving the quality of life because they, they say the better home, the happier life. And that's again a value and identity trait that, that brings all the external collaborators in. And then the final uh, level is social good. When they go around the world, they look at the home rituals around the world, and they are also switching to sustainable materials, creating lamps for underdeveloped societies so they can have electricity, like they can have light without electricity. So I think that's a much deeper level of a DJ model when you mix different elements in your growth strategy rather than just collaborations. Yeah, and speaking of sustainability, it seems that the crisis has really pushed all of us to reassess our values and question our personal relationships, you know, the work-life balance and just our, generally our lifestyle. And many consumers have started cleaning out their closets and curating their wardrobes, that's, that's me. Mm -hmm. um, and many are focused you know, more than ever on buying sustainability-made items and generally just buying less. Do you think this is the new reality and how do you think the fashion industry needs to respond to this? Absolutely. And that was a long time coming because you've seen with the real real or with the Depop, which is big in Europe and also coming to the US market, the real fun starts when you sort of start discovering new things that are not really new. So what you're really buying is you're not buying the latest collection, you're buying a specific style or you're buying someone's look. And that goes back to what you and I talked earlier about those micro communities and micro influencers. Right. Who I would love to see Scott Kerr's closet. <laughs> you know what I mean? probably like really amazingly curated and you probably have some gems there that like, you know. That, that will that will be my next that will be my next podcast uh it will be a video <laughs> podcast and i'll just me the luxury item from your closet a luxury item right exactly <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so does so, that mean the fashion industry is going to downsize because of that no i don't think it is unfortunately like what we're seeing is that like I think preciously litter was learned from this pandemic. And I think that again, when we have this big luxury, those companies that were in the biggest trouble, like carrying LVMH in terms of sales were those who overproduce, who have a massive footprint. And Hermes wasn't. Their sales went down just a little. 
because they never overproduce. So I think that overproduction is 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 much bigger problem. But then it's an ecosystem problem because you have magazines that are pushing constantly for new imagery, new collections, and then you have designers who are producing new collections, and then you have more and more stores and more and more emerging markets and people who are buying that. So I think it's very hard to kind of change one part without changing everything else. Yeah. So, you know, the U.S. protests against systematic racism, you know, which spread around the globe, have put the spotlight on the luxury and fashion world and its role as a, as a cultural beacon, you know, and a spotlight on how far luxury brands have come in addressing a global audience that wants their purchases to reflect inclusive values. So in the modern aspiration economy, what do luxury and fashion brands have to do to be relevant to this new conscious consumer? They need to reflect the world outside them more. And that does not mean hiring a chief diversity officer. That (laughs) is making diversity a systematic feature of their organizational design. And the reason why brands like Telfer Clemens, again, are having a moment right now because the values they're putting forward of queerness, blackness, inclusivity are those values that this society is ready to talk about. And that's why I said before, it's a really good time for brands to really reassess what their DNA is and then build community around that DNA. And yeah. I would like to remind you, remember the Battle of Versailles? It's, it's something where five American designers, five French designers. One of them was Stephen Boros. He was African-American designers. He was on a disco scene. And that really got me thinking into how change often comes from the marginalized and how do you have that outsider innovation is the most exciting innovation. And what happens at the fringes of the industry is what actually matters. And we are seeing that really today because he brought 11 black models. I mean, that was 1973. Yeah. Like we didn't have five black, like 11 black models five years ago. Right, I know. So my final question, um, which I ask all my guests, is the luxury item question. I'm very excited to hear your answer to this. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one luxury item, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of transportation. So sorry, you can't have a private jet on that island or anything that requires mobile service. What would that one luxury item be? There would be some very, very cashmere plush blanket from Hermes, for example, sustainably made so I can wrap myself and forget about everything. Very materialistic of me. Uh, I know. So, Anna, could you tell our listeners how they can pre-order your book, The Business of Aspiration? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. So, the book is available for pre-order from Amazon. So, you can find it there, just The Business of Aspiration is the title. Or you can uh, learn more about the book at the website, thebusinessofaspiration.com. You can also find me online just by Googling my name, Anna, A-N-A, Angelic, A-N-D-J-E-L-I-C. And Scott, thank you so much for this fantastic conversation. No, thank you. I really, en- I really enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward any up- wait, before jump, any, other, any upcoming appearances? I have so much going on. I know. Are you going to be at the Luxury Daily uh, Conference? Yes. 
yes. So I will be speaking with the head of innovation uh, from Accenture. We are doing a Q&A and fireside chat about virtual reality and luxury. And oh. I'm also doing this Financial Times event with the next web about uh, sustainability and fashion. Great. Look forward to that. Anna, thank you so much. Uh, great guest. Very insightful. And I knew it would be. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much again, Scott. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.